With barely six weeks to go, can you still make a move in the ratio categories? We'll talk about that and more with Todd Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 11th. It's show number 32 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We will talk with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire about moving in ERA, whip, and batting average, about the hidden fantasy risk of the Dodger trade for you, Darvish, about some fantasy category surprises, and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at Jay Bruce going from New York, Wilson Contreras going to the DL, and more. And from the American League with Jock Thompson looking at Jay Bruce going to Cleveland, Yonder Alonso going to Seattle, Felix Hernandez going to the DL, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon reports on Mets first baseman Dominic Smith, who features prominently in this week's edition. In our frequent flyers comment, HQ Analyst Alex Becky looks at Arizona first baseman Kevin Crone and Pittsburgh starting pitcher Stephen Brault. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Milwaukee left-hander Brent Suter facing Cincinnati right-hander Scott Feldman and other pitcher matchups for this weekend. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The trade deadline passed, and yet there have been more trades. we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our show, as always, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson on deck with player news from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Let's start with the uh, big trade news of the week. We're always curious to watch the post-deadline period because a lot of teams uh, in fantasy baseball look at the deadline as being the end of all trading, but of course it's not. There's post-waivers trading. You get a guy through the waivers because of his high salary. You can trade him darn near anywhere, and certainly that's what the Mets did with Jay Bruce. They traded him to Cleveland, and let, before we get on to what they got back, uh, what is the effect for the Mets, especially in the outfield? So what will happen is that Michael Conforto has been playing for a space. He'll go back to the outfield. And in fact, in the game on Thursday night, he shifted into the cleanup spot. He'd been hitting leadoff. So probably the outfield of the Met is going to be Conforto, Cespedes, and Granderson. Uh, and then Dominic Smith has been called from the minors to play first base. And we'd, we'd known that was going to happen. That was one of those things that we'd been speculating about. Uh, the only question was when uh, Dominic Smith was coming up. And uh, the trade of Bruce, of course, opens up a roster spot and opens up a full-time playing spot. And Dominic Smith, I think, will slide right into that spot. And, of course, they'll also need a fourth outfielder now that they've uh, lost Jay Bruce. Uh, it looks like that'll be Juan Lagares. It looks like it should be Juan Lagares. He should be back from the uh, – was activated from the DL uh, actually on Thursday. And so Lagares will become the fourth outfielder. Uh, and we'll pick up some, uh, probably rotate through some of the outfield or the other outfield positions trying to give the guys some rest. So Ligares will be kind of the fourth outfielder for the Mets at this point. And of course, the Mets got back a prospect. That's usually what they do at this time of year. Teams that are trading their big high salary stars are looking for young players. What did the Mets get? The Mets get back a right-handed pitcher, Ryder Ryan, 
um, and they uh, get they get uh, some money to cover Bruce's remaining salary. So uh, the Mets are pretty high on Ryan. He's had an unusual path to being considered a pitching prospect. Drafted out of high school by Cleveland in the 40th round as a pitcher. Went to the University of North Carolina where he played third base and pitched just one inning in college. So they think he has a high ceiling as a pitcher. We're obviously not going to see him uh, anytime soon. He's got a ways to go. But uh, uh, they So they've got a prospect back. Uh, they really... Really, Cleveland gave up very little to get uh, Bruce for, to rent Bruce for the, the final two months of the season. In Chicago, Wilson Contreras, their fine catcher, and boy, he was hitting the ball lately, but he's gone to the DL. So uh, playing time today, coverage by Tom Kephart for BaseballHQ.com. What's going to happen in the Chicago Cubs situation? Well, Alex Avila suddenly gets full-time at bats, and what looked like a good trade when they picked up Alex Avila at the trade deadline uh, from from uh, Detroit now looks like a great trade because they have a solid catcher. Um, you know the question for fantasy owners is if you don't have Alex Avila, do you go out and grab him? And, and I think there's a real question about that at this point. Alex Avila looked incredible in the first half. Uh, hit 311 with 11 home runs and 28 RBIs and looked just amazing. Uh, now he's gone back to being Alex Avila since the uh, since the second half started. Uh, in his last 64 at bats, uh, 156 batting average, one home run. What was a 43% hit rate in the first half has regressed, and now is down to 23%. Um, so I'm not sure I'd jump on Alex Avila at this point, even though he's going to get some full-time playing time over the next uh, the next 10 days or so. For leagues that play with on-base percentage instead of batting average, as they should, Alex Avila is a little more attractive. Uh, Nick, he draws a ton of walks. He's got a 16% walk rate. He's always taken a lot of walks. The uh, drawback here is that he really struggles to make contact. Right, that 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 is the drawback, and a, a wonderful, as you said, on base percentage. The first half was four thirty two, that's phenomenal. Um, second half, it's been two sixty seven, which of course is a lot more mediocre, and that, that's all because he's not been making that contact and not getting that uh, huge hit rate he was getting in the first half. And as you mentioned, really not much of a power threat, although it should be a little more uh, hospitable being in Wrigley Field than in Comerica Park of Detroit. Uh, the Cubs have a switch-hitting catching prospect, Victor Caratini, who was on the roster. They sent him to AAA Iowa at the start of the month after they got Avila from Detroit. He's probably going to be recalled from AAA to take the backup role, maybe a short side of a platoon role situation. Do we like Victor Caratini for anything? Well, you know, at this point, I think they're going to be very careful with Victor Caratini. Uh, the Cubs are, are trying to get uh, to stay in a race here. And unless Caratini does very, very well defensively uh, off right off the bat, I think they will be very careful with him because they uh, uh, they need to make sure there's solid defense coming out of the catcher position. Um, Caratini was up as Contreras backup before Avila was acquired. Five for 26, one home run. Uh, so not not too bad. Uh, but I think he'll probably have very limited playing time. Five for 26 puts him under the Mendoza line, though, and it's really, uh, boy, you'd be looking for lightning in a bottle, I think, if you grabbed him. Uh, also in Chicago, shortstop Addison Russell was placed on the 10-day disabled list with a right foot strain. Uh, the Cubs called up left-hander Rob Zastrizny from AAA Iowa, then they sent him back a couple of days later. But the real story here is uh, Tom Kephart reports in playing time today that Javier Baez might be the beneficiary. Javier Baez has been playing uh, a lot anyway at, at various positions around the infield, but now suddenly may wind up getting very full time at bats in, in the in the near term. And uh, you know Javier Baez is a guy that if he gets hot can do some real can really do some things for you because Javier Baez has some power uh, and has actually been playing very well over the last uh, 
over the last few weeks. If you look at uh, at the first half, Javier Baez had uh, 10 home runs, 249 batting average. But the second half, 89 at-bats were looking at six home runs, 303 batting average, uh, 16 RBIs, a couple of stolen bases. Uh, we're even paying much better uh, since the All-Star break. And, and so uh, if I had him, I'd, I'd get him in my lineup at this point because he's going to have full-time at-bats in the short term. Tom Kephart also noted, though, that Baez might not be the offensive asset we used to think he was. There's a lot of worry here, it looks to me anyway, in these uh, in these base performance indicators, contact rate and walk rate and so forth. Well, there are indeed. I mean, there are you know the the, the uh, there is some some problematic things in those those indicators. A uh, zero point two zero i a thirty three BPV so. Walk rate remains at a minimal level, so not very much patience, a very free swinger. But, of course, the other thing is, the thing that's going to keep him in the lineup at this point, is he makes spectacular plays all over the infield, and the defense is certainly going to be uh, be very valuable in the short term over the next uh, the next week or so where, while Russell is on the DL. Yeah, it looks like a bit of a dice roll for me. I don't like those skills, but of course, in the short run, they matter. They matter a lot less, right? I mean, if you're looking at a guy over a, a long period of time, then you have to think the skills will catch up with the performance. But over the short run, it, just the fact that he's in the lineup makes him worth at least thinking about. Yeah, it does indeed. I think, and you know, at this point, he's he's been hot recently, and so uh, he's a guy that I would think uh, I would not hesitate. I think to put in the lineup for a week or so and to see how he does. In St. Louis, Dexter Fowler finally back from the disabled list. Phil Hertz covered this for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Nick, before we discuss Fowler, uh, St. Louis made some roster space by optioning outfielder Stephen Piscotty, somewhat of a surprise for some of us. What do you think this says about Stephen Piscotty's status? Yeah, I mean, you know, just four months ago, the Cardinals signed Piscotty to a a six-year extension, and so uh, now suddenly being sent back to the minor leagues, and uh, he's just not been performing. Uh, At at this point, uh, 234... uh, XBA at 83 PX, uh, been even worse recently, five for his last 33. Uh, so Piscotty will be back uh, when the rosters expand and maybe back before that. Right now he just needs to get straightened out because he's not uh, he's not hitting very well. And so uh, at this point, I don't know how much I would count on him uh, from, from now even for the rest of the season. Uh, so I think, you know, Piscotty is just at this point a, a problem from now to the end of the season. But I think once he gets whatever it is that's uh, mechanical or what's in his head or whatever he needs to do to clear himself out, Piscotty's going to be a fine ball player, but maybe not over the next two months. Uh, Dexter Fowler, of course, is a, is a guy we know about uh, who has outstanding skills. Dexter Fowler has actually been struggling a bit this this year. A two fifty one batting average in spite of 15 home runs and five stolen bases and 42 RBIs. And so uh, overall, not bad, but that uh, the batting average has hurt. Uh, his hit rate is at 28%, which for him is a little bit low. Uh, XBA is 270. So I think we can see that batting average come up 20 to 30 points and wouldn't be surprised at all if he's uh, really quite valuable over the last two months of the season. And I noticed that his uh, 112 power index is pretty much in line with what he's done the past couple of seasons. So that looks like something that we might be able to rely on. Uh, before we move on, Nick, I'm curious what you think about how St. Louis is handling its roster this year. You mentioned they signed Piscotty to a six-year extension, then down he goes as soon as he hits a slump. Randall Grichuk, the same thing. Colton Wong, the same thing. They go into a slump, and the team's first reaction is, get him out of here. And I wonder, what do you think of that? Well, you know, that's kind of a, it's kind of a strange thing. Uh, you have to wonder what, what, what is causing this that they're not willing to, uh, 
to work with them at the with the hitting coach at the major league level to try to get them straightened out. Uh, certainly, it's a situation where you can't put them in the lineup every day while they're struggling. And maybe the thought is uh, they're better off uh, being in the lineup every day and hitting every day than sitting on the bench and working on the sidelines. And maybe that's the thinking. Uh, it seems like a kind of a perhaps a sort of a strange way of dealing with it. But uh, I guess we'll see how, how it works and whether it gets these guys straightened out and, and back into uh, a better uh, better playing situation. The other side of the coin, though, is what people think is that if a player is out there knowing that as soon as he falls into any kind of slump, I mean, in, in St. Louis's defense, this is not like three days without a hit. It's it's longer than that and a little bit more pronounced. But the, there's the argument that gets made that if a player goes out there thinking he has to succeed right now or he's going to get sent to the minors, that's not conducive to putting him into that relaxed, confident frame of mind that baseball depends on. It's not an emotional sport like football or hockey. It's a, it's a relaxation sport. And if you go up there being worried about your spot if you don't get a hit right now that seems like it might be a little counterproductive for st louis uh especially for owners of st louis players yeah i think i would agree with you on that i mean it's one of those situations where uh there's a lot of pressure and and if you're struggling there's pressure anyway so maybe increasing that pressure with the thought that uh if i don't perform tonight if i go over five i could be back in the minors tomorrow and right riding the bus somewhere uh, that you know, you're right. That's not conducive to a frame of mind that you want to hit her in when they go up to the plate. I had one other thought about it too, and it might be this. And I, and I'll, I'm curious what you think of this. But over the last couple of years, it's been widely reported. We've talked about it here in Baseball HQ Radio, Nick. And that is the teams are are going from a 13 hitter, 12 pitcher mix on the 25 man roster. Sometimes even 14, 11. It's now getting to the point where a lot of teams go into a game and they only have a backup catcher and maybe one or two other uh, replacement hitters. And I wonder if you're St. Louis or any team for that matter, you look at your bench and you say to yourself, my bench is already short. I can't afford to have a player sitting on the bench that I need for a pinch hitting situation or for an injury replacement during a game if he's absolutely not hitting and hasn't been for the last three weeks. We can't afford to wait for this guy to play himself back into his usual level because we just don't have enough bodies on the bench to allow that to happen. That's entirely possible. I mean, we're seeing, certainly seeing, uh, I'm noticing more and more situations where starting pitchers are only going four innings and then the bullpen is taking up the rest of the, uh, the rest of the ball game. And so when that happens, uh, then certainly you've got to have a lot of pitchers. Uh, and, and as you said, the mix has got to, to, to fall toward the pitching side, which leaves very few hitters on the bench. Finally, uh, we have a feature at BaseballHQ.com called the Facts and Flukes Spotlight. It's kind of a, an exaggerated or enhanced version of our regular Facts and Flukes performance validation coverage where we look at players and we decide, is their current level of performance a fact or a fluke? Now, the spotlight goes into a single player at the same kind of length, which means there's a lot more depth in the coverage. And uh, this week, Stephen Nickrand, our fine starting pitcher buyer's guide columnist, was looking at Milwaukee right-hander Jim Jimmy Nelson, his owners are enjoying a long-awaited breakout. And the question now is, is Nelson's 2017 surge for real? What is Stevens' analysis? Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, it's interesting. This has really been a breakout. If you look back at what's, uh, what's gone on, uh, uh, last year a BPV of 37, this year a BPV of 151. So a huge, a huge breakout. And so what Steven has done and what these, 
these factory blue spotlight columns do is really dig into depth on a player and ask, is this is this real? Is this something's going to going to continue? Uh, and the, Stephen's conclusion is this is uh, this is a very impressive breakout both on the surface and beneath the surface. Uh, some real signs of optimism regarding Jimmy Nelson uh, attacking the strike zone much more, especially against lefties than he was uh, a year ago. His knuckle curve has uh, really transformed into a strikeout weapon, uh, particularly against left-handers, and that was one of the problems he was having was getting lefties out. And throwing the knuckle curve harder or with more effective movement than he has before. Uh, prior to this season, uh, Stephen says, uh, very little skill hope heading into 2017. And certainly you've got some regression risk heading into age 28. But Jimmy Nelson has changed himself. He's transformed himself. The adjustments he's made uh, have really uh, legitimized, as Stephen says, his skill growth. And for me, uh, definitely a, a, a good stretch run target and a keeper league a hold target. I thought so too. And for me, the two numbers that jumped out in Steven's analysis were the walk rate, uh, 4.3 last year, 2.2 this year. That's a lot of walks taken out of the mix. And at the same time, he's getting more strikeouts because he's getting more swinging strikes. Just 7.4% last year, all the way up to 11% this year. That's like a 50% increase in the number of swinging strikes he's getting. And he's getting double-digit swinging strikes on four of his five pitches, including that knuckle curve, as you mentioned. Uh, sometimes it takes these pitchers, Nick, just a little while to figure things out. And Jimmy Nelson's just getting to that age where in addition to physical maturity, maybe his uh, his time in the big leagues has allowed him to figure out what his strengths are and to really maximize them. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Jimmy Nelson was a guy. If you if you if you can think back when he first came into the majors a few years ago, this was a guy we thought was going to be very very good, and he turned not only did he turn out not to be very good, he turned out to be very very bad, and uh, so a lot of owners were were dropping him like crazy in keeper leagues. Uh, and this year, that breakout, as Stephen uh, points out, is, it seems to be very real. Uh, a good reason to suspect that, just as you said, he suddenly found some maturity as a pitcher uh, and is going to be somewhat be, be considerably valuable over the next few seasons. All right, Nick, uh, always interesting and a lot of fun to talk to you. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, PD. Good to be here. Busy week this week. Has it ever been? I don't remember a week uh, where we've had so many transactions and trades and what have you in the American League in quite a while, and it starts with trades. Uh, I was mentioning to Nick in the National League report just a minute ago that the deadline has passed, but that doesn't mean the trading is over. We saw a couple of examples already in the American League as well, starting with a really significant cross-league deal. I talked about this from the National League point of view with Nick, but uh, the American League is going to be affected as well with Jay Bruce coming to Cleveland. Uh, Tom Kephart covered the story for playing time today. So what's going to go on in that Cleveland outfield with Jay Bruce arriving on the scene? Well, it's a good time for Bruce to land in Cleveland, a good time for Cleveland anyway, because they just had Michael Brantley go on the deal with the sprained ankle, and his return date is murky at best, uh, particularly if you're familiar with Michael Brantley and his injury history. Um, even if Brantley hadn't been hurt, um, Bruce would have gotten a lot of playing time in Cleveland. He provides left-handed power that... Uh, that the Cleveland outfield just doesn't have, particularly with Chisholm Hall on the DL now. Bruce has 29 homers this year, uh, and, and all of the Cleveland outfielders combined have 37, which is, to, to me, was amazing. Um, it looks like uh, Bruce will 
probably play in right field. Uh, Zimmer's going to stay in center field. And now Austin Jackson is going to go over to left field waiting for Brantley to return. Uh, Brantley's had a had a pretty decent mini comeback. Uh, his plate skills are probably better than they've been in a while. His patience is up. He's benefited with a little bit of a, an inflated hit rate, uh, 315 batting average and 146 at bats. But uh, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Well, you mentioned that Bruce has... Um, uh 29 home runs to the combined 36 of the Cleveland outfielders. The left-handed hitting Cleveland outfielders only have 26, so he's out homering them all combined, and that's including Lonnie Chisenhall. And you mentioned him. Uh, he's uh, on the DL, of course, but he's been having a pretty good year. What happens when he comes back? He really has. Uh, my guess is that uh, Bruce plays full-time against both lefties and, and righties. He He's hit both very well this year, uh, 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 270 isolated uh, uh, power and 36 home runs per 500 at bats against right-handers. Uh, 246 isolated power and 22 home runs per 500 at bats against lefties. That's much better than any, uh, much higher against lefties than any Cleve, any of the Cleveland outfielders. But Chisholm Hall was was doing well in his own right now. Granted, he only has 208 plate appearances this year. He's had some injuries, but his uh, 295 isolated power is actually higher against right-handed pitching than Bruce's. Uh, so um, um, he'll, he's going to play. Zimmer will probably keep playing center field. So the big question is what they're going to do against left-handed hitters. Uh, and uh, like I said, Bruce hits, uh, Bruce hits them very well. Uh, um, Chisholm Hall, is the, he has the next high, highest isolated power against lefties. Austin Jackson has been very strong against uh, left-handed pitching, uh, 243 isolated power, and, a, and an OPS of over 1,000. So uh, all the other Cleveland outfielders are underwater. I would suspect uh, against lefties it's going to be Bruce in right field, Chisholm Hall in center field, and Jackson in left field. So an already crowded situation gets crowded-er when Mike Brantley also returns. What happens then? Yeah, uh, interesting. Uh, Zimmer could be the odd man out, uh, despite his excellent uh, defense. Um, based on the offensive performance, here's how I'd play them. Uh, against left-handed pitching, I'd go Bruce right field, Chisholm Hall center, Jackson left field. Against right-handed pitching, I'd go Bruce right field, Chisholm Hall center field, Brantley in uh, in left field. So uh, Zimmer could uh, could lose some playing time. And, and we were talking before this phone conversation, if Cleveland could ever get uh, their outfield healthy all at one one time they'd be quite a force in the other big trade in the american league oakland kept it in the league trading yonder alonzo their first baseman to seattle for a minor leaguer first of all what does this mean for seattle well the plan that seattle has is is to make first base a straight platoon between alonzo and danny valencia uh, they both have ops's over 900 versus right for alonzo and left and uh 900 uh uh, versus uh, lefties for Valencia and OPS is uh, under 700 the other way so it, it looks like it's a pretty good fit. But uh, Alonzo has really struggled over the past couple of months especially considering his hot start. Remember at the start of the season everybody was raving about his new approach at the plate and how he was lofting the ball and this and that and uh, after that torrid start he's not been that great. You talked about this in playing time tomorrow not long ago. Let's uh, figure out what's going on with yonder alonzo here 
Yeah, I was kind of shocked. I had lost a little bit of track with Alonzo not owning him in any of my leagues. And, and I was surprised that nobody was talking about the way he's fallen off because uh, just before he got traded to Seattle, he had hit 215 with just six home runs over his previous 149 at-bats since late June. He's been playing through nagging injuries, uh, uh, with uh, wrist injuries and, and a knee issue. Um, and it, and it you almost look at this and think that this drop-off suggests these injuries could be taking a, a toll. Another interesting factoid about Alonzo is his ground ball rate has gone from 27% in the first half to 47% over 91 second half at bats. So um, he struggled a little bit. He's homered in just uh, one out of uh, his last 23 games. Uh, and uh, if he can't think, turn things around, you would almost think that Seattle, if they're trying to stay in the, in the wild card, he may not lose as much playing time as some people think. Yeah, it seems to me, Jock, like they'll give him, uh, they'll give Alonzo, that is, a little bit of rope, and we'll see if he hangs himself with it or, or uses it to whip himself into shape because uh, Valencia, even at 700 uh, OPS, might be a better choice than Alonzo if Alonzo doesn't get it turned around. So we we see what's going on in Seattle potentially with the first base situation, but Oakland now has a gaping hole at first. Who's going to move in? Well, two big reasons Oakland was willing to move Alonzo. One, he's going to be a free agent after the season, obviously. But the rebuilding A's also want to see what they have with first base prospect Matt Olson. Uh, and, and when you're thinking about Olson's skill set, think about uh, Joey Gallo. He's a big home run guy who walks and whiffs a lot. Uh, he doesn't quite have uh, Gallo's power. Not too many uh, players do. Uh, Gallo's an 80 power bat, obviously. But uh, Chapman's not that, or I'm sorry, Olsen's not that far away. 23 home runs and 294 at-bats at AAA Nashville and 45 walks to go along with uh, 83 strikeouts. So uh, a, a big three true outcome guy. Yes, and somebody who should be interesting, I think, especially to American League only players. Uh, Matt Olson could certainly give you a jolt in the uh, power department. And if you're playing an on-base percentage league, and uh, you should be, then uh, that might also mitigate against what's going to be, I think, a pretty low batting average. Uh, we were talking about Cleveland, and they got some good news uh, finally in that Jason Kipnis has returned to the lineup after missing a month. He had a hamstring injury, then he went out and played and promptly tweaked the injury again. Tom Kephart covered this for playing time today. Jock, what are things looking like in the Cleveland infield with the Kipnis situation? Yeah, Kipnis left his... Thursday start with hamstring tightness and it's the same hamstring that landed him on the DL which suggests that uh, he could be shelved again possibly though the Indians are initially calling this a day-to-day -day thing. Uh, meanwhile uh, again you've got Eric Gonzalez or Michael Martinez both saw time when uh, Kipnis was out. Uh, um, they could go back to second base or or maybe Jose Ramirez moves to second and Cleveland finally gives uh, Yandy Diaz an extended opportunity. Diaz is a real interesting guy. He's a he's a uh, a Cuban uh, import uh, who has hit uh, 350 this year in the minors. Doesn't have a lot of power. He's he's a strong guy. He's a guy who could probably use a, a, a swing change. Uh, we talk about that uh, a lot uh, this year. Um, but right now, he's only got five home runs, but uh, making a lot of good hard contact and walking a lot. So uh, Cleveland's got an interesting situation again. Well, they kept Ursula, Giovanni Ursula at third base. He was playing third base during Kipnis' last DL stint, and they sent Gonzalez to AAA when Kipnis came back. Ursula is pretty solid defensively. What about him? 
Yeah, he's solid defensively. The problem with for fantasy purposes and, and for Cleveland offensively is that he, he, he really can't hit. Uh, um, it, it'll be interesting uh, to see if they, uh, if they keep him up uh, given the week back, but uh, definitely good with the glove. Uh, we're going to have to wait and see what happens in Cleveland, I think. Now, I had a thought, uh, Jock, while I was looking at this. Why couldn't they move uh, Ramirez to second base that they has, as they have already, Jose Ramirez, that is, put Carlos Santana from first base to third base where he has played some. Edwin Encarnacion could move from DH to first base, and that would free up that DH spot for all those many outfielders that we talked about earlier. Yeah, it would certainly help the offense, too, if, if Kipnan goes down. Uh, the problem, I think, is that Cleveland has shown a, a little reluctance to uh, let uh, Santana play third base uh, for defensive reasons, and uh, adding uh, adding uh, Edwin Encarnacion at first base isn't uh, isn't an improvement in the glove situation either. Felix Hernandez of Seattle back on the DL with shoulder bursitis. This is the same ailment that put him on the DL a couple of months earlier this season. A recently acquired Marco Gonzalez has already made one start in his place, might have to make a few more. Rod Truesdell covered this for playing time today at Baseball HQ. What's the outlook here? Well, the doctors say Felix is uh, going to miss three, four weeks. Now, Felix has been quoted as saying he'll be back sooner, that it's not nearly as bad as the previous issues. Frankly, I would believe the doctors, uh, Felix is getting more and more in injury prone. That that arm is a real worry. He's thrown a lot of pitches at age 31, 32. Um, I, I sure wouldn't be betting on him to uh, stabilize my fantasy rotation if I owned him. I was thinking the same thing, and uh, as confident as Felix is about his, his own shoulder, and of course he has every right to be, and he knows himself better than anybody else, but the same injury twice in a year, to me that's just a gigantic red flag. Yeah, and he only had like, uh, I think, seven or eight starts between the two injuries, so um, you have to wonder what's going on there. Uh, he's, uh, he, he's had a great career, but he's not the, the pitcher he used to be. And what, meanwhile, what about this Marco Gonzalez? Is he worth looking at? You know, he used to be a top 100 prospect, but it was all on the basis of a, of a, of really exquisite command and a plus, uh, a, a very good changeup. Uh, it's really the only pitch in his arsenal that 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 really is above average. He was uh, he was pretty much killed his first start in Seattle. He was killed his only start in in uh, in St. Louis before he was traded. Um, I, I he's got a back of the rotation future, um, but I I honestly wonder how well he's going to do here in the short term. I think Seattle is in real trouble with the rotation on any night James Paxton didn't pitch. Yeah, he, Paxton is turning out to be everything we were waiting for. Uh, I didn't get in on it, unfortunately. But yeah, other than Paxton, this Seattle rotation looks borderline minor league. Yeah, particularly for a team that's supposed to be sticking in the wild card. Uh, nobody in the rotation has a sub-4 ERA other than Paxton, and uh, and that's a problem if you're trying to not just make the postseason but go through it with any depth. In Kansas City, some bad news for a team struggling to stay in the race. Uh, Salvador Perez, their fine catchers on the DL with an intercostal strain. Matt Dodge covered this for playing time today. So what do Kansas City and fantasy owners of Sal Perez do? Well, Drew Butera is going to get most of the bats in Perez's absence, and that's obviously a big drop-off offensively. Uh, so they're not going to find a solution there. Uh, the real question is whether fantasy owners with limited DL spots should even keep that open for Perez, given how little time is remaining uh, in the season. Um, my take is that he could return by the end of the month, and when you think about how, how slim the pickings are at catchers, you almost have to hold on. Uh, you almost have to keep Perez in a DL spot. 
Yeah, I agree on pending other kind of news. Of course, we could find out that it's more serious than we first thought. And it's interesting that you bring that up, Jock, because we are getting to that time of the season where a somewhat lengthy DL stint could mean you're better off dropping the guy entirely than hanging on to him, especially, as you say, in leagues that have limited DL or limited reserve slots. Yeah, it's uh, we're, we're getting down the down to the very end uh, and this is when injuries you really have to look at the uh, the ETAs and uh, and what your options are and uh, a lot of a lot of small sample stuff is uh, is going to uh, factor in now over these last six seven weeks some turmoil in the Yankees uh, roster both Matt Holiday and Clint Frazier go on the DL Holiday has a lumbar strain a Clint Frazier has the oblique strain and Aaron Hicks meanwhile comes back he had a terrific start before he got hurt so where does all this mean the Yankees are standing regarding their DH and outfield spots well the Yankees have a lot of depth particularly at DH and outfield obviously Hicks is going to get some of the at-bats vacated by Frazier but uh, the Yankees have uh, Brett Gardner, Aaron Judge, and, uh, and Jake, Jacoby Ellsbury in the outfield as well. And now they've had three different DHs in the five games since Holiday uh, has uh, last played. Uh, Matt Dodge points out that uh, Ellsbury is the big PT winner, uh, even though his production had dwindled up. But who knows? Uh, you know, when we're talking about small samples, more at-bats could jumpstart his game. Um, and Matt Holiday's replacement, Garrett Cooper, will also see some uh, uh, at bats at, at DH uh, versus lefties. Garrett Cooper had a terrific series just recently against the Toronto Blue Jays. I think he had eight or nine hits in three or four games. It was uh, he looked really good out there. It didn't look like he was at all overmatched or uh, or fearful of the situation. He took advantage of his opportunity. Garrett Cooper might be a guy to keep an eye on. Uh, in Anaheim, uh, the Los Angeles Angels returned Cameron Maben from the DL, but they put Yunel Escobar onto the DL with an oblique strain. Uh, what's the situation with the Angels playing time? Well, maybe in returns as the primary left fielder, but his spot is probably more tenuous than it was when he left, partly because he was struggling before going on the DL, and partly because Ben Revere has started to produce in his absence. And and I guess if you want another reason, partly because the Angels lineup as a whole is really struggling to score runs. Uh, so Maben will play most nights if he produces, but he's going to have to produce from the get-go, and Revere is going to get his time, and both look like they're going to run frequently down the stretch. Well, from your lips to God's ear, I added Revere when somebody in my league dropped him, and this is an American League only, and I was fairly surprised to see Revere get dropped, given that even as a pinch runner, he might have contributed bags, and he's been terrific for me. Uh, what about the third base spot in the meantime? Yunel Escobar on the DL, who fills in? Well, Luis Valbuena has really been awful at the plate during the little time he's been healthy, but uh, the Angels keep hoping he'll begin to hit righties, and with Escobar out, he's our best defender at third base, so he's going to get uh, the third base uh, time uh, um, against right-handers. Now, the interesting thing, uh, the, the Angels just called up Jeffrey Marte to take over uh, Escobar's roster spot. And if last night's any indication against James Paxton, um, he's going to play against left-handed pitching, which tells you just about how badly the Angels need offense because Marte is a, a terrible defender at third base. Uh, the big winner here is C.J. Crone, who takes over the first base at bats while, while Balbuena is over at third base. And Crone's issues have always been his performance against righties and poor pitch selection. But he's actually perked up a little over the last week. He's, he's having his best stretch of the season. He's had four multi-hit games uh, in the last five nights. So in a small sample uh, down the stretch, maybe this is a guy you look at. I was interested to see Jeffrey Marte get recalled. I have him on my roster as well. He's sitting on a reserve spot at the moment. And I'm wondering whether... It 
considering that uh, every guy you add, you have to subtract somebody somewhere else. What do you think Jeffrey Marte's chances are of actually doing anything worthwhile in these last six weeks or however long you know Escobar is on the shelf? Well, if if you look at what he did last year, I mean, it could happen. I mean, it's not it's not it's not there's it's not a zero probability or possibility. Uh, the problem is, um, you know, I mean, if you look at what he's done this year, it's it's total night and day difference. Uh, he's going to be playing uh, third base, or at least from what we can tell, against lefties. He's hit lefties a little bit better than righties, so he's always had the power. So who knows? Uh, if if you need help, um, you you give it a shot and take your chances. I guess that's what I'm going to have to do, uh, depending. I, I don't know. Uh, we'll have to see what else goes on as far as my own roster is concerned, and everybody else is going to have to consider the same thing. I don't think Jeffrey Marte's uh, rosterable in a mixed league, however, even with the news. Yeah, it's, that's kind of my take, too. Uh, the Angels are just trying to plug in solutions and hope for the best. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you're doing that from a fantasy standpoint, great. But uh, the results aren't always, uh, aren't always what you hope for. We have a few other items here. As we said, it's been a very busy week. Let's look at some of these things uh, quickly. Alex Cobb in Tampa has hit the DL. It uh, looks like a case of turf toe. Could be back pretty quickly, though, as Matt Dodge noted in playing time today, Cobb's poor health grade has always given us pause. So uh, who takes over for Cobb while he's out, and what does that mean for fantasy? Well, the enigmatic up-and-down Blake Snell threw one of his best games of the season on Thursday night. He likely earned another start while Cobb is out uh, uh, Snell only walked two hitters in six and a third innings, which is news in itself, and uh, and held the opposition to one run. So uh, uh, at least going forwards, he'll he'll probably get another start or two. In Houston, George Springer finally returned from a quad strain. Obviously, he goes straight back into the outfield in his starting role. But who loses the playing time now that George Springer's back on the scene? Well, rookie Derek Fisher and Jake Marisnik are obviously going to lose a little time each, but it may depend on who hits over the near term because the Astros are suddenly have become very erratic in their scoring. They were held to two runs against a, a pretty bad White Sox team last night, uh, just for example. Uh, they have depth, uh, especially thanks to Marwin Gonzalez, and they can move pieces around, but uh, these are the two names most at risk with Springer's return. Troy Tulowitzki appears to be out for the season in Toronto, and anyone who's stuck with Tulowitzki throughout this season will not be looking at his replacements from Toronto. No, you're right. We've talked about this uh, uh, throughout the season. Uh, now it's ligament damage, and they've moved him to the 60-day DL, which all but rules him out uh, for the rest of the season. He could come back for the last week, but I don't know why they'd, why they'd bring him back. Uh, Matt Dodge seems to think we're going to see a lot of Ryan Goins, and that's what's happened in the past, and uh, I don't think you want Ryan Goins on your fantasy team. In an American League only, I think you could look at him. He's got some home runs this year for the first time in his career. I think he's got six or seven home runs, which is probably mostly due to the ball. Uh, other than that, he's a pretty poor offensive player. He doesn't run. He doesn't really hit that much. He's, he's not a guy who's that that useful to anybody but again in an American League only league the fact that he's going to get at bats means he could contribute some counting stats at least if nothing else uh, in Chicago the White Sox are allowing Ronaldo Lopez to make his 2017 debut whom does he replace and will you be buying um, he's going to replace Mike Pelfrey uh, and uh, it's not no wonder there Mike Pelfrey has uh, has uh, um, produced a 531 ERA in 19 starts. It's surprising that it took so long, actually. 
Lopez has actually been on a, on a tear in AAA, particularly over his last start. 72 strikeouts in 47 innings, and he's allowed more than two runs just once in those eight starts. Uh, Young pitching's a crapshoot, and his rebuilding team doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. But I own Ronaldo Lopez, and I play in strikeout league, so I'm I'm going to ride him. I need help uh, in strikeouts. Uh, bottom line is, if he's worth a flyer, and you need the K's, uh, he's and and you're looking for pitching. Uh, there, there's probably not that many other good free options out there. And of course, if you're looking at a keeper or dynasty league format, definitely worth looking at Ronaldo Lopez. And finally, back to Los Angeles, your bailiwick, your stomping grounds. Looks like the Angels have pushed Bud Norris out of the closer role. Who steps up to the closer role in Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim? Yeah, I've watched Norris implode over the last week, and he did it again last night in Seattle. Uh, um, they brought in uh, Cam Bedrosian, who suddenly looked very good. He pitched; he might have pitched his best inning since he's come back from uh, being injured. He struck out two hitters, worked a clean one, two, three ninth for the save. I think Bedrosian is probably the first choice again for saves. Uh, Kean Middleton uh, is another guy, uh, the guy who throws in the high 90s. He's, he's a little more up and down than Bedrosian, but uh, I think those two are going to be the primary choices right now. I would almost be surprised if uh, if Norris gets another shot soon in the late innings. What about Blake Parker, who has been bandied about at least as a potential closer there? Blake Parker's an interesting guy. A lot of swing and miss early in the season, but uh, you and I were talking before we called. If you look at his month-to-month dominance, uh, it has gone steadily and distinctively downhill since April uh, to the point now since the All-Star break where he's no longer uh, getting that much, that many swings and misses. Uh, he struck out eight hitters a game in, uh, in, 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 in July per nine innings, and now he's striking out six uh, per nine innings in August. He's fallen off dramatically, not saying he couldn't couldn't come back but uh that's a disturbing trend minus two per month all the way down uh, that means uh four strikeouts per nine next month and then two starting next year yeah it is quite a uh, when you see that kind of thing don't you think there's a injury problem lurking there as a possibility at least yeah, could be. Uh, it's it's really interesting because even though his dom was falling uh, throughout the first half, I mean, when you go from uh, 15 to, from in April to 12 in May, you're not too concerned, and even 10 in June. But when you go down to eight and then you get down to six, you got to wonder what's going on. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought when you first told me about this information, and that. Uh, for a relief pitcher, going from some high number to some other high number, because the uh, amount of batter's face is so small, you, you could almost say, you know, a guy who's a 12 strikeout per nine pitcher could easily be 15 over some period of, you know, 10 games, and he could easily be 10 over some period of, of uh, that many games. But it's when the drop-off goes from 12 to 6 is when you really start thinking, "Uh uh-oh, there's something going on here. And especially, as you said, that the decline has been straight line and straight downhill. Yeah, that's quite a trend we got going there for for, uh, Blake Parker. Okay, Jock, a lot of news this week. I appreciate you taking the time to look into it for us, and we'll talk to you again in seven days with more news from the American League. Sounds good. See you, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and a columnist at the site. He also covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's our feature expert interview. We're talking with Todd. It's Todd Zola coming up. Stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. The 1-1 swing and a drive to deep left field. It's got a chance. Up and going back. It's going to go. Home run, Bartolo Colon. Repeating, home run, Bartolo Colon. Seven-line army in right field might tear this ballpark down. Cologne carried his bat with him until he was about 10 feet 
from first base. He's taking the slowest home run trot you've ever seen. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined once again by Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, one of our favorite guests. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Great to be back with you, PD. In your Z-Files column at Rotowire, you had some interesting thoughts right after the trading deadline, and since I haven't talked with you since the deadline, let's catch up a little. I'd like to start with the Dodgers trade for you, Darvish. You made some interesting points there. Yeah, I think the, um, the 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 key with that trade is they didn't the Dodgers did not trade you Darvish for August and September, they traded for you Darvish for October. I mean, I this you know I don't have so much dating myself with this, but you know remember a few years back when Milwaukee picked up CC Sabathia, they they think they use him every other day, it so it seemed. You know, nothing nothing runs like a rental, you, you know whatever. So they uh, the Dodgers the the point being. They're not going to overextend him, uh, you know. I don't. They're not going to expect seven, eight, nine innings out of him. They just, you know, I think they, I think they could probably win what ten more games and make the playoffs, which is kind of silly at this point. So, uh, you know, they did not get him for that, which means from a fantasy basis, sure, he's going to help you, obviously, but don't count on, you know, at this point, whatever it be nine starts and you know sixty three, sixty four innings. He's probably going to give closer to fifty, fifty five innings. Which is still going to help, but that 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 you know those extra ten innings are important. It's because they're they're you know they're more than ten percent of what's to be expected from at this point. Yeah, it especially affects the uh, strikeout totals, obviously, but also it kind of impinges a little bit on his wins likelihood. The shorter outing lasts, the more likely it is that either you leave losing or tied, or that the uh, bullpen manages to figure out a way to blow the lead, although that's not been a problem for the Dodgers. It is a bit different, though, I thought, Todd, that uh, with the CC Sabathia story, the Milwaukee Brewers at that time, they were really in a race. I mean, they had to put their horses out there and beat them like right. rented mules, but uh, in this case, the Dodgers have a little more leeway, as you suggest. Right, and they, as, you, as you sort of did suggest too, they fortified their bullpen. So you know, part of it is that you know they don't need them to go seven, eight, nine. They can, well, I guess they bring in Singrani, uh, but you know they 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 did they have length in their bullpen. So that might be you know the bullpen may be better for guys like Maeda and some of the injured guys, Ryu and that sort of you know the guys that you're not expecting to go very far but i do think it dovetail dovetails onto darvish now the playoffs may be a different story they may be looking for seven innings and then get a bridge and then go to jensen but at least at this point um you know you mentioned strikeouts and wins you know it also does affect ratios too they are that close but sure um i just you know head to head leagues i don't think they're going to sit them so i don't think you have to worry about uh you know losing darvish for your playoffs but you may not get the two start week that you may have thought you would yeah, that's an excellent point as well. And any kind of head-to-head competition uh, could be affected in those sh- kind of more short-run incidents. You'd like to have seven innings or eight innings out of Darvish. You might get only five and two-thirds or whatever the case might be. Uh, uh, I talked earlier in the show with uh, both uh, Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson about the Jay Bruce deal. He comes over to Cleveland from the Mets, obviously affects both leagues as far as uh, only league uh, fantasy purposes are concerned. I'm just curious about your take on Jay Bruce leaving New York for for Cleveland and how that plays out, especially in Cleveland. Yeah, well, I mean, on paper, the park helps him. City Field was actually pretty good for lefty power, but but Cleveland's really good for it. It's just a matter, you know, it, I, you know, do you do you sit 
do you sit Jay Bruce for Lonnie Chisenhall? I don't think so. So I'm people are concerned about the playing time. I'd be more concerned if, if when Lonnie Chisenhall comes back than I would be about Jay Bruce losing any playing time. I mean, first base and DH is locked up with Santana and Encarnacion. So, you know, in, 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 in Brantley's health situation is always tenuous. So it could be that Bruce and Chisenhall both play at the same time against right-handed pitching. So I, I think it's, it's, it's positive for his, uh, for his outlook. You never know with runs in RBI, but it's still a, a really good, uh, really good lineup, especially the top of the lineup. So if you're in the NL, you you may even get a little bit better Jay Bruce down the stretch. Although, as we know, anything can happen. So you know, NL only leagues that get to keep the stats. You know, I, I'd, I'd actually be a little bit happy on paper. AL only. Listen, if you uh, if you for whatever reason didn't go, you know, what I'm, I guess what the best way to say it is, if Bruce was available at the trade deadline with everybody else, he may have been the highest bidder. So whoever had the third or fourth most fab and, and now has the first most fab in AL only leagues, they're sitting pretty sure they're going to get him for a few, uh, a couple less weeks. But still, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good consolation prize compared to other, other seasons at this point. You know, I was looking at the Lonnie Chisenhall situation with Jock when we were talking about his impact in Cleveland, and it seems to me that at least in the short run this year, a smaller sample, just 2017, but Chisenhall's out hitting all of those guys against right-handers and left-handers, except Jay Bruce, and he's pretty close to him versus right-handers. Is there any chance that maybe it's Zimmer or Brantley when he comes back that sits more regularly than uh, Chisenhall, and that Chisenhall, given his offensive production this year at least, might be uh, in line for more playing time than we think? Yeah, I think it's going to depend on Zimmer and if he hits and if they feel Brantley can play center field. Because I, I don't know if you're going to put uh, – I don't think you're going to put Jay Bruce in center. Maybe you are. I don't know. I mean, Cleveland seems to be one of those uh, organizations that, that's quietly into the Sabre numbers and that sort of thing. They, they don't they – don't, you know, it's not sort of – they're not in the forefront. But I do think uh, – I mean, I know when Terry Francona was in Boston – he, you know, the organization was, you know, was was highly into it, and he was not against using those numbers along with his his own, you know, personal uh, touch and feel sort of thing. So yeah, I I think that the the, the you know, what's the expression? These things usually fl- you know play themselves out, and I think it will. Bradley Bradley Zimmer's hitting all right. He's I mean they've been hitting him lead off, but he's still striking out. His defense is pretty good. So it may just come down to that they want to move Brantley to center fielder. If Brantley doesn't get healthy, the answer that's the answer right there. Chisenhall actually has 19 games in center field for Cleveland this year as well, so they That's true. they certainly That's true. might uh, might be willing to put him out there. So it's an interesting situation, and as you say, so much of it depends on when Chisenhall comes back from his injury and when Brantley comes back from his injury. And uh, in the meantime, like you say, things will sort themselves out. They got no choices in that regard. Uh, you noted that you had Jonathan Lucroy as your top catcher coming into the 2017 draft season, and indeed, all the signs for Lucroy looked really good. But instead, he's been uh, simply terrible in Texas, let's be honest. How much do you think the move to the great hitters park in Colorado and being on the fringes of a playoff chase is going to affect his rest of season? You know, um, uh, I, I'm not as enthused. As, I mean, some people see the move to Colorado and, you, can, you know, you know, Milwaukee and then Texas, they were both good hitting, both great hitting parks. And obviously Colorado is, but it's not that much better of a home run park. It's more of a, it's, it's more of an overall hitters park. You know, you know, keep you know, keep in mind the the venues, why parks do what they do. The home runs come in Colorado because of the the altitude and the weather, and there and it's a big park, so it's just hard to cover all that ground. So it's one of those parks that's great for homers and great for runs. 
the problem with Lucroy, and I mean, I, this isn't anything that people haven't seen, I'm sure, and you probably talked about, he's just not hitting the ball hard. He's he's sort of anti the rest of the league whose theory is swing, the, you know, swing really hard in case I hit the ball. It seems to me he's just selling out for contact, and it's just not solid contact. And, you know, I'm not, I mean, I guess I am a scientist, but I, 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 I just, I don't care. If you don't, if you don't hit the ball hard in cores, it's still not going to go out. You still have to hit the ball fairly hard. So whatever the reason he's not hitting the ball hard is the sort of conundrum. And all right, maybe he's hurt. But can a catcher hide an injury for, you know, a, a half to two-thirds of a season? I, don't, I, just, I, don't, I just don't see that. Uh, so there's just something going on there. Now, you know, the one narrative I can see is, like you sort of alluded to it too, he's going to a team that's on the fringe of the playoffs, uh, you know, being recharged or whatever. Maybe if it's in his head, whatever, you know, for whatever reason, he can then start to let loose again and, and put the ball in the air and hit the ball hard. I don't know. Results haven't that, been that great since he moved there. So I guess I just see a little more of the same with a few extra hits just because the, the con, not so much the confines, but the dimensions. But, you know, he's he's as disappointing a player as because my, you know, I coming into the season, I had him over Buster Posey let alone guys like Gary Sanchez. And he's just, uh, he's been, you know, it's sort of a microcosm of my of my season this year is what Jonathan LaCroix's done. But, um, man, I just, uh, I don't think it's the, I don't think it's the elixir some people seem to sort of offhandedly suggest. And, of course, if anyone was looking at Jonathan Lucroy as a source of stolen bases from the catcher position, as little as that was happening, Colorado runs about half as often as Texas. So I'm sure whatever small... V- tiny vestige of hope was left for Jonathan Lucre in that department is probably gone as well. You said in that column you find it easier to move in the ratio categories than in the counting stats, and you acknowledge that in the conventional wisdom and advice is exactly the opposite. It's easier to catch up in the counters. What are you seeing that everyone else seems to be missing? Uh, We've talked about this. I've talked about this for years. If If you normalize the categories, that is, if you just assign... Well, first you convert the ratios to accounting stat, however you want to do that, and then if you make each each category worth this, you know, a thousand units, whatever it might be, normalize it to the same number of units, the ratios are just are bunched much tighter than the counting stats. Now, this is using average standings, so you take a league like the NFBC or your home league that's been in existence for several years, and you just you know average the cat- average the stats over the course of you know a lot of teams so in the NFPC it's sort of one year and you get average standings that's the, so using those standings they're really really bunched now your own league there's you know there's places where you're there's it's individual i mean each league is unique where there's bunch bunch places in the categories which is bunched and there's places where there's big gaps so at the end of the day it depends on where you are within the category but in general, there's more of an opportunity for ERA and ratio, uh, ERA and WHIP and batting average to be bunched. And the other reason too is you can't lose accounting stat unless you're George Brett from a you know several years ago. You can't lose accounting stat. So whereas in, in pitching, you you could gain a point in pitching, two points, three points, without even having a pitcher throw a ball that day because your opponent may have had just had a a bad outing or two. You know, obviously you're going to get at bat, so you, you you know you can lose or gain points in the bats, but you can't use the analogy without getting at bat because if you don't get in the bat for a day, you must have a you know really silly offense. But anyway, so the point being, um, the bunch, the the fact that they're bunched, and the fact that teams can move in both directions, and I've monitored, I've been saying this for years, so I don't want to just say it. I follow standings, and a lot of the current uh, scoring 
uh, commissioner services let you see movement on a day-to-day basis and I've tracked it and there's even on the last day of the season there's more movement in ratios than there are in the counting stats I mean you see you look at home runs you look at you know you're three or five away it's, it takes it you know to even hit three or five in a week more than a, an opposing team is a big thing is, is hard to do so it's the, you're not as close as you think you are because you're not the only team doing it the other team is also continuing to hit homers continuing to hit homers yeah, and I think that's something that people overlook when they're thinking about this. They just see that four home run gap and they say, hey, I can make that up. And that's true, but it's only really true if the other guy just simply stops hitting home runs and, and lets you catch catch up. But on the other hand, as you say, even in the batting average category or on-base percentages we use in tout, you can sit there or you can have a, as as I've been having, I was second from the bottom in, in on-base percentage, and in six weeks I'm up to like fifth in the category because I just strung together a bunch of weeks of 460, and all of my opponents between me in fifth place were all having weeks of 305. And because they're moving backwards while I'm moving forwards, I'm basically making up the ground at twice the pace. And I, I think the lesson here is not so much that you will always be able to make these gains in ratio categories over counting stats because, as you say, sometimes in a given league, that isn't going to be how it works. But I think the lesson is don't just automatically discount the possibility that you can make a pretty significant move in those ratio categories, even if it's relatively late in the season. Because, as you said, you've got the evidence. And as many of us have anecdotal experience of either being caught from behind by a guy who was 10 spots behind us or catching somebody who was 10 spots in front of us with five weeks to go. Yeah, that's what it is. It's the accrual of at bats and innings pitched or plate appearances. It's not prohibitive, and it, like you know, you said you know we we are, you know, sort of epi- uh, mimicking what I've seen. We we both say the same thing. Just don't discount it when you do the as I like to call it category math. When you do the category math, don't dismiss being able to move in ratios and in batting average slash OBP at this time of the season. If if your opponents are ignoring it, then it may even give you an easier an easier opportunity. If, if they, you know, you can, maybe if you don't believe it and I can make a trade, you know, you're using th- your head, you're saying, eh, I'm not going to move in ratio anyway. And you trade me a guy, well, <laughs> now I got gotcha you because you are going to move in ratio and you help me. So, uh, you know, not that, not that all the leagues, a lot of trading deadlines have passed. Although I, I sort of, it's my experience that, uh, fantasy leagues are extending their deadline past the MLB trade deadline at this point, so a lot of lot of lot of leagues still have active trading. And they should because otherwise there's so much difficulty with the. Yeah. Uh, if you, uh, I used to play in a league that had the deadline the same day as the major leagues, and sometimes because that day is on a Monday and your transaction deadline is on a Sunday, and you run into all of those kind of problems, just move your fantasy deadline out to the end of August and let uh, let people have some nice trading frenzies uh, as September starts sure. rolling around. Why not, right? Yeah, and there's some leagues. Um, you know, you, you probably in a couple or have seen them. That you know, as you get deeper into the uh, season, maybe you can only trade with uh, pe- teams in the standings within X amount of points or X amount of standings places in the standings, so that you're not going to get the last place team. And keeper leagues is a different story, but in a redraft league, you're not going to get the last place team making a deal with the first place team just to get out of last place. Which some people are saying to me, "Well, why not?" But um, you know, once you, you don't want to, I don't think you want to do that on August, you know, 27th, you know, I, let, let's, let's let the, let's let the team, let's let the battle play out sort of organically at that point. But absolutely. And I think, uh, I think at this point it's actually the, the, the rule, not the exception to have at least August 15th, if not August 31st trading deadlines. 
Yeah, I think in the the one league that I used to play in, they, we moved it out till the Sunday after the last day of the deadline, whatever it happened to be that year, and that allowed everybody to have a good look at what had happened at the deadline and then make their decisions accordingly. And I, I think, uh, as uh, we both agree, that's a pretty good solution to a problem that sometimes pops up. It's not every year, but sometimes the, the way that the deadline falls versus the transaction deadline falls kind of sucks. Uh, in the comments after the column, and I really like this, uh, Todd, that you welcome all these reader comments about your uh, columns and sometimes they comment about something that has nothing to do with the column and in this instance you answered a reader query about uh, making a close call between two closers who are not obvious guys like Craig Kimbrell and you said you have a simple solution and what's your simple solution for a two close closers kind of conundrum well it's nothing nothing new to to HQ followers it's the old draft skills not roles situation if it's close you know just go with the better pitcher I think um if I recall, I know one was was Aredos Viscano, and I think you know he was the better pitcher. I forget who the other the other person that the other potential closer. It had to be somebody on like a Mapalile or something like that uh, on a team that uh, it, maybe the situation wasn't definite. But in the, yeah, if it's close, and the, the point being though, well, you know, so someone you know, the, if you take that to the next level, why don't you do you know? Isn't that always the case? Well, I don't always agree with the with the draft skills not roles. Uh, mantra, especially in saves, in that you know sometimes you got to go with the role. If you need saves, sometimes you need to just get go and get with the guy getting the saves over the better pitcher, especially this time of the season. So it's not always the case where you draft the better pitcher. I think you know it, you know if you're, if you're third closer. In, in in March, sure, take the better pitcher. But at some point, you may need to, you need to draft the, you need to draft the role. Um, you know, same with steals. If you need steals, sometimes you, you know you need to. He's not a greater player, but you need steals. You just take that player. So in that instance, now I mean, I did a little mid-season research to try to help identify where you can figure out a pitcher that's going to get more saves. And I think we did talk about this a little bit too. Where we already, at this point, I think it's more, pe- I think people realize at this point that the way this, the uh, the category in MLB in general has, has flushed out, that the more wins you get, the more save opportunities you get, or the more saves you get. And it goes, you know, even a bad team can get saves. While that's true, there's always exceptions, but wins and saves correlate. We talked about that on the first pitch forum tour in the spring. But the point I found interesting when I when I did a little more research is the percentage of wins that are saved, which are down this year in a big way, but the percentage of wins that are saved correlates best to team ERA, uh, even more so than run differential, which I found to be a little bit interesting. And run the team you want a team to run score the the the, the run support the pitcher gets is, is it's random as far as saves. So. The way to identify a closer that's going to get more saves is on a good team and uh, on a team that has a low ERA. And not all, you know, not all good teams have low ERAs. They're good because they hit the ball really hard. So, um, and that that help explains why some of these lesser teams that don't win as many games, but they they still have a good ERA because their offense isn't very good. Uh, where you can sort of identify closers. I think Pittsburgh may be one area where you can identify closers. So. Uh, you know, using that to try to figure out how many saves a guy's going to get. I want the most saves. If it's close, just give me the better pitcher. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Todd Zola from Rotowire and ESPN and Masters Ball. And, and Todd, uh, you mentioned uh, 
Matt Belial. I think it was Blake Trinan the guy was asking about in Oakland, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of Matt Belial, you said in a Twitter feed uh, that you had you, that you think Trevor Hildenberger in Minneapolis might get a look as the Twins' closer, even though Matt Belial seems to have the job, and even though Taylor Rogers seems to be behind him, putting Hildenberger third at best. Why the mad, uh, well, not mad, I guess, why the uh, interest in Hildenberger, shall we say? Well, you know, it's part of what we do. You know, people want to know the next the next closer. And um, one of my guys, Birdie on Chicago, has uh, Tommy John, so I can't I can't I can't pimp him. And Jimenez in Detroit get got called up, and I wouldn't be surprised if we're talking about him as Joe Jimenez's closer at some point. Basically, uh, the Twins have, have sort of you know they they've fallen out of it. So why not take a look at someone else? They're not a, they're not a team that's going to go out and spend a lot on a closer, so they're going to look internally. And I don't know if Hindlenberg has been groomed as the closer of the future, mainly because he's not dominant. He you know he he gets by with less than 90 mile an hour fastball, but he does get the job done. He's but he's been getting saves in the minors, so you want to throw names out there to look at, especially in keeper leagues, because if you can if every, especially at the trade, I think I threw this out close to the trade deadline. If everybody else is going all in on all the um, all the guys that came over at, uh, from the National League and everything, some of the prospects that were called up. And if your keeper league lets you keep players at the at the Fab bid, for instance, you can get you know you could have got Hildenberg for for nothing, you know one two three dollars, and you may have you may have next year's closer as long as you don't have to make the decision till next year. You may have just Fab next year's closer for single digits. It's kind of what the purpose of that tweet was. If he if he threw harder, I'd I'd like to pick. I'd like to call more. But he doesn't throw that hard. Not that, you know, Melanson, there's been some closers that don't get it up there into the mid-90s. Although Melanson throws harder than people think. Um, it's just that he was just, an, it's just basically keep your eye on this guy. He closed in the minors. He's having some success in the majors, although not in high leverage roles. So it was just kind of a, you know, if you're, if you're looking for a dart to throw for September and or next year, keep this guy on your, on your radar. I'm surprised you say that you think Minnesota is out of it. The last time I looked, they were like a half game out of the second wild card spot. Are you are you that sure that they're done? No, well, I, well, they they were when they traded Jamie Garcia. I mean, so I think that they kind of figure that whatever good stuff's going on isn't going to continue, and you know, eventually, well, not so much cream rises, but I, I, but they are they are still close. But I don't think they would have traded Garcia had they thought they were you know gonna make the move. I just think they're a pretty good club that's kind of hanging in there. So um, I don't think they'll make the playoffs. I don't think they have the pitching. There's just uh, I just think that you know, somebody will will emerge, and by the end of the season they won't be in the race. But um, you know, and, and t- as long as they are, I don't think we'll see Hildenberger. But maybe in September, if they do fall out, that's when we see him. You also link out to all your columns that you write from your Twitter account, and I don't remember which column it was, but I noticed that you said Miguel Sano would be a really good target for rebuilding fantasy teams to look for and getting in a trade. And it's not just because of the obvious, the home run production. Uh, what else is there about Miguel Sano that you really like? Yeah, now this, it, it, it's kind of, I mean, it's one of those, I know it's, it's a little, it's kind of a leap of faith, but... Uh, I don't know. It's there's somewhat of a feel, and not necessarily the numbers. As long as the home runs stay at the rate that they're staying at, and that then uh, the percentage of runs scored in the league stays, you know, on the, via the home run stays where it's at. Sano is going to be an outstanding 
source of runs and RBIs, not just homers. Sometimes when we when we draft, we look at their batting average, and we look at their home runs, and we look at their steals, and we come up with a rank or a dollar value or a round or whatever you want to what you think of it. We kind of ignore the the RBI and runs. I just I just see Sano as someone who year after year, based upon where he hits in the order and the way the 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 Twins design their team and his home runs, is just going to be a guy that's going to get a lot of runs and RBIs too. And even if it's even if we just expect 90 or 95 out of a guy that hits third, even if he's giving us 105 or so, you know, 10 or 20 more total, that's huge in fantasy leagues. So I just I just see him as being a guy that's going to uh, score some runs and knock in a well, you know, everybody, you know, every third hitter that hit homers is. I just think he's going to be a, among the leaders in runs and RBIs. It could be wrong, but I just it's just my between the way the home runs are going now with percentage of runs scored and the t- sort of team that they build. Uh, Sano's a guy that I'm, I'm, I will be looking at. Now, I, he's not going to come cheap, especially if he stays you know, fairly healthy down the stretch, because that was one of the knocks on him, was can he stay healthy? And is he improved? He's, he's not Brooks Robinson at third, but he's certainly, I don't even know if he's league average, but he's passable. He's not a butcher anymore. So you kind of have to take that out of the equation, too. He's going to play. I'm doing a... Uh BaseballHQ.com facts and fluke spotlight on Miguel Sano right now. And one of the things that jumped out at me as far as runs and RBIs was concerned was despite the other advances that he's made, and he really does hit the ball hard, which helps a lot, but he still strikes out a ton. And you can't drive in runs when you strike guys out, and when you when you strike out, I should say, and you can't score runs when you're not on base because you walk, you're walking back to the bench with uh, with your bat in your hand. Is there some concern that the very high strikeout levels that Sano seems unable to or unwilling to fix is going to put a cap on how many RBIs or runs we might legitimately expect from him. Yeah, I'd be more concerned if the if the overall MLB environment were different, if not if, if so many runs weren't being scored via the homer. Yeah, it will. Which I guess the answer to that is he's as good as he is now. Imagine how good he would be if he if he hit the ball more. But you can say that um, about about the homers too. And I don't know. I I, I don't think that there's, there's still a chance, I guess, that they can they improve the contact a bit. I don't know that they actually care. I think they just continue to if they if if they get what they're getting now, I think it's going to be fine. But um, yes, there there's definitely that that there if you're if you're some scoring risk in that uh, into your ratings or whatever. Absolutely, anybody that strikes out that much, there's definitely a little bit more risk. And if that keeps the price down for me, I'll be okay with that. Uh, and, and, and it just might. It, it just might keep the price down for me. Something else that intrigues me about Sano's RBI potential, and I think you referred to this in the column as well, is that RBIs are a team-related stat. And uh, while he was kind of lagging in, in RBIs, given the amount of home runs he's been hitting over the last couple of years, he was doing it on a Twins team that was basically not very good. And, and even if you're hitting a ton of home runs and not striking out, you can't drive in batters who aren't on base. The base runners have to be there. And this year, I've already noticed that he's uh, something like six or seven RBIs ahead of last year's pace, and he's 60 or 70 plate appearances below last year's pace. So he's definitely picking something up. And because all of his other stats are pretty much exactly the same, his home run pace is slightly up. But I think something's going on with the Twins roster in that they're putting more guys on base. I'd like to, and I didn't look up their team on base percentages for the two seasons. But I bet if I do, I'm going to see the Tims are putting the Twins are putting more runners on. 
Yeah, and and there's still the, there's still the Byron Buxton enigma. If he becomes what they what he still could, it could even get better. So sure, and you know we, we recall what kind of second half Dozier had last year. Um, not that he's a huge on base guy, but um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, just the fact that the Twins are competing. You know, we mentioned that they're a game or two out of the wild card spot just because of that. You know, and their pitching isn't very good. That means they got to be getting it done at the bats. So absolutely, and um, you know, I just I think that as you suggest. The offense, I think, not that they have a ton of, of, of great kids in the farm, but I do think that the, the offense will continue to grow over the next few years. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola, Masters Ball ESPN and Rotowire. And in your Z Files column at Rotowire, you also talked about players who have been surprises in each of the hitting categories. I thought this was an interesting way to approach this. And before we start talking about specifics, given your long experience in this game, Todd, I would have thought you've seen it all. How does anything surprise Todd Zola anymore? <laughs> well, as I alluded to in the column, um, I, I kind of poke fun at myself, whatever. You were looking at, what, 30 teams, uh, 750 players, and 2,430 games, if, and plus any play-in games by the time the season's over. So that's a lot of information. So as, as, much, as, as, as much as we look something's going to fall through the cracks. It's going to be something that surprises us. And any, you know, people that read the column and know me well enough that know that the, uh, that this was just a, uh, a, I don't want to say thinly veiled, but I mean, you said you like the, you, you like the, the approach, which, which means it was, a, you know, I did my job. Sometimes we just look, we, sometimes we just look for a vehicle to write about players and that just happened to be my vehicle. So instead of just saying, Hey, here's five players I'm going to write about, you know, I, I, found that common theme just because uh you know when you've been writing for this long you, you work with some good editors they teach you this sort of thing so that was that was kind of my thing was uh you know there's been a you know once in a while i get surprised by what a player's doing it could just because i wasn't aware of the last two weeks of what he how well he's done or or maybe for the whole season so it was kind of a little a little self-deprecating approach and uh came up with five players batters next week i'm going to have five pitchers that when i looked at the numbers either good or bad i said geez wow i didn't know that i did too and you talked about your selection in the batting average category surprised by miguel cabrera and it's more than just his power that's off you said his track record actually makes you wary that he might rebound uh, what was the surprise in batting average and why do you think he might not be able to recover after having said that i'm now more I'm, I'm more I'm, I'm more optimistic, but the thing his track record is so good, and what we're hearing, you know, we're hearing he's got a sore back and and he's playing through an injury. So to me, when you when it's that good, and then this single year it's it's that bad, to me, you know, luck can't account for it. Or at least when I when I started, I'm like, there's no way luck is is the deal here. I mean, yeah, he, he bad luck or whatever, but such a long track record of what he's doing. So I just figured it, it had to be he's got to be playing through a sore back there's just no way he's not and I, maybe that still is the case but you know i call it number scouting and i talked about this and and i actually got a note from a scout who uh who kind of heard heard me talking about it and we went a little back and forth about it but the um you know if you look at the the hard hit rate and his uh line drive rate and they're as good as they've ever been and what, what you know maybe I'm hearing mumblings that the Detroit calibrations could be off with Nick Castellanos and some other and some other hitters so it could just be that the that the statcast readings in Comerica Park may be a little misleading um I, I believe that MLB controls that, not the Tigers. So I don't want to make it sound like the Tigers are are are, are jerry rigging the numbers. But the point being, 
some of this narrative about hard hit rates for some of these tigers may not be the case if, if, if the calibrations are a little bit off. But the point being, still the line drive rate is high. And even if they're a little off, they're not, they can't be that off. He's still hitting the ball hard. So you can't, if, if his back is sore, he's still hitting the ball really, really hard. So maybe he is still having, just having some luck, some bad luck. Or the uh, he's not pulling the ball as much as he has in the past. So it, it also could be just due to the park dimensions and the whatnot that even though he's hitting the ball hard, his timing might be a little off or because of the bad back, his swing mechanics are just a little bit different and he's not taking advantage of the ballpark as well as he had in the past. But even even that, it just seems to be a, such a, a huge disparity in the numbers. So I came, I, I, actually, I don't want to say I wanted the narrative because I don't want the narrative to be anything. I want the narrative to be what I, how I interpret the numbers. But I was planning on saying this guy just has to be hurt. But based upon the hard hit data and the line drive rate, I'm just not so sure. I think that there's, there's a few things going on. And I don't have Miggy. I kind of, I'm kind of glad that I don't because it's such a hard decision. You know, do I go with you know, Logan Morrison over, over Cabrera, Brandon Belt or Will Myers? There's so many good but not great first basemen that are having a better year, and it's just such a tough decision. Especially in the short run when anything can happen. Yeah. You'd like to kind of believe that a guy like Cabrera could really catch fire quickly because he's got those core skills and whatever has been ailing him, the chances of him recovering it, especially over the short run, seem like they're pretty good. I noticed that somebody asked you in a comment about whether you'd, or maybe you mentioned it in the story, who would you take for the rest of the season? Miguel Cabrera, Logan Morrison, or Justin Smoke? You took Smoke eventually. Yeah, and no, I actually it wasn't my it wasn't me that was answering Twitter questions, but I saw some of our colleagues. Uh, these are the questions posed to them: was Miggy and Smoke and Miggy and Morrison, and the response in the comments there, you know, connected on Twitter, were just obviously Miggy go with the track record. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, like I said, it's I think for me what it actually came down to is I just plugged them into my. And, you know, what I figure they're going to get the rest of the season. And if you all get the same number of at-bats, Smoke, you know, I, I don't think you can discount what he's done. Smoke is the best of the lot. So, you know, in a va- I, I hate using in a vacuum because, you know, you don't play in a vacuum because there's no air and you probably couldn't breathe very well. So I don't like to look at things in a vacuum. But Miggy has, still has the greater potential to get hurt of the three. So if it's that close, whereas the pitcher, I go with the, you know, we say go with the skills. I mean, if if it's a choice, go with the guy that's most likely to play. And to me, that's smoke. Morrison's playing against lefties, but with a couple of acquisitions for Tampa, I can still see him sitting against a couple of southpaws now. So I guess, you know, I mean, if that, I don't know how, what, what the context would be where you have a choice between Miggy and smoke, if it's a trade or, I don't know, maybe you, maybe you have them both in your team and you've been reserving smoke and or for whatever reason, I don't know why you'd be reserving smoke. But, you know, I mean, gun to head, so to speak, I think I like smoke more than Miggy the rest of the year. It's a toss-up with Morrison. And if you need the upside, I go with Miggy. If you want to be safe, I go with Morrison. And, you know, this is a guy that people drafted in the first round, Miggy, you know, Miguel Cabrera. And of course, there are formats where you can choose anybody you like, salary cap games and those yeah. kind of things where, you know, just because you have Miggy doesn't mean nobody else does. And because some other guys got smoked doesn't mean you can't. So there are those questions as well. In the home runs category, uh, Mike Moustakis of Kansas City was your surprise. What surprised you about Mike Moustakis? We saw this coming, didn't we? 
Well, I didn't. Well, again, this is one of those things where, yeah, I knew he was hitting homers, but I looked up, he had 32. Now he's had nine the past month, so maybe he's just been off my radar. And I think I, I think I joked about it in the column too. Is whenever I pick him in DFS, he seems to you know have a bad night. So maybe I was a little bit biased. I just didn't realize he had 32. Now 32, when I wrote the column, is pacing to the low 40s. So you know you know the extension is is he going to hit 40, 41, 42, 43 homers? So uh, you know we we are our friend of the podcast and you know friend of the first pitch tour. Mike Podhorse's research from Fangraph shows us that fly ball distance correlates to home Home runs, and there's nothing special about Mustakas's fly ball distance. As a matter of fact, it's it's you know it's it's down from a year, and you know it's up from other years. But it's it's kind of you know it's it's in the range of where it's always been. But his home run pace is just really huge, which you know if you number scouting, which is dangerous, but number scouting tells you that. He may not hit home runs at the same pace. He just happens to be pulling the ball a little bit more. Or if it's in a, you know, if it's the center field, the the 400 foot home run and on the on the road in a park that you know he hit the ball he hit the 400 feet happened to be in a park where it leaves the park and and not goes off the wall or and caught in a different park. It's just timing or whatever. So um, you know, setting the over under at 40 from Mustakis, I think that's kind of the, I think that's kind of a fair number. It's he's pacing to 43, so we I set it at 40. Ah, that's it's a tough. You know, I may take the under. I, you know, if it was a real bet, I'd take the under just because if he gets hurt, you win. So just the logic says to do it. But if he doesn't get hurt, you know, I I don't know. I'll take the under on 43, um, just because of the luck and the luck thing. How unlucky will he get? I think 40 is a fair. You know, with 32 now, I think 40 is a fair expectation. He hit nine in a month, so he's easily capable of blowing past 40. In RBI, another Royal, Lorenzo Cain, shocked you with his RBI production so far, and not on the good side. What's going on there? Yeah, um, I think a lot of that had to do with, I just thought that he was hitting, well, he was, he was hitting third for much of the year. I didn't realize how much he was hitting second. But still, when you when you have, uh, and the Royals were, you know, they're not, they were competing, well, they still are competing, and their pitching isn't that great, so their offense has to be doing something. He had like 37 RBI or something, so coming from a number three hitter, it just kind of, it just really, I mean, I, you know, how can you, how can you only knock in 37 runs? He had like 11 homers. So it wasn't all because he's, you know, you, you know, some of those have to be on home runs, but I just, I expected a higher RBI total from a guy hitting third on a team that's scoring some runs anyway. And, uh, just turns out that the OBP, as you alluded to with Minnesota, you can, the, the same argument and kind of reverse. He had he had a Escobar hitting in front of him. He had Mondesi at some point. He just didn't have guys with high OBPs hitting in front of him, even in the three hole. So you know his batting average and balls in play, which is normally a little higher for for hitters than it is their regular batting average. And I I, I, I sort of opine that it's because when you're running to scoring position the pitcher's pitching out of the stretch and uh, the skills are a little bit worse in the stretch. So it's not that the guy's clutch. It's just the normal course of events. You're facing a slightly weaker version of the pitcher. So it makes sense that overall globally batting average of running and scoring position is a little bit higher than just plain old batting average. But um, his was a little lower. It's not, it was 270. It wasn't egregiously lower. So you can say, sure, he hasn't taken advantage of, the opportunity has been given, but still, 37 just kind of it's like weird. Now the problem is he's sitting second now with uh, with Melky Kane sitting second with Melky Cabrera in town. So 
if you're expecting an uptick in, in RBI, you're probably not going to get it. You're going to get more runs, hopefully, but you're not going to get the, you know, if you begin this season, when I, all right, I've got uh, 300 home runs and 1,400 RBIs and, and 1,400 runs, well, you're going to fall short of that run target because of Kane, and, uh, you know, you're not going to make it up. Of course, RBI are a team-affected stat, as we've now discussed twice. By the way, I looked up uh, the Twins on base percentages during Sano's uh, term with the team. 2015, it was 305, up to 316 last year, and his RBI rate went up 328 this year. So that's a 25-point gain. That's not bad. And certainly supports the idea that, uh, especially if it continues, that uh, Miguel Sano could be a hidden RBI source in future years. Uh the same is true of runs, not for Miguel Sano so much, but in uh, your column about runs, the surprise was Albert Pujols, uh, and again, not in a good way. Yeah, um, I'm, I might be mixing up the 37, I don't remember, I maybe 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 he has the same 37 that Kane had for runs, and I'm just forgetting it, but I think Pujols had, had scored like 37 runs, and I think he had like 17 homers at the time, and that just, just blows my mind that he only scored 20 runs that weren't you know, with his own assists, so to speak. And I know he's kind of slow, and, and I know the foot hurts, and, I, you know, this, that, and the other thing, and I know he's missed some time. But, you know, 20 runs, that just, it just kind of, that was just bizarre. So, I mean, it's, a lot of these are just, you know, an excuse to talk, you know, like I mentioned, it's just an excuse to talk about Albert Pujols. Um, you know, if you want to look at, you know, will the runs pick up? Uh, you know, I, I, I think they have to just because they're just so low. But um, the thing, the other thing with pool holes that I just didn't realize, and this was, you know, shame on me. And sometimes I say it's what was a Mustakis was just a past month. I sort of, you know, got lost in the shuffle. You know, I, to me, pool hole still has a great eye and he still walks a ton. Well, that's just not the case. And that's something I probably should have noticed doing projections on a year-to-year basis. His walk rate has just plummeted. And maybe it's because people, pitchers aren't afraid of him. Maybe it's because, you know, the, the ballpark and, the, you know, let, here, here, hit it out. It's a big park. See if you can. Uh, or, you know, maybe just because the Angels just don't have a good bottom of the order. But, um, you know, I don't think his, I don't think he's just less patient or anything. I just I think it's just the approach or whatever. But Pujols is not walking nearly as much. Therefore, he's not getting on base. Therefore, he's not scoring as many runs. So, to me, the shocker wasn't so much he's not scoring, but just how, I just I'll use the word naive I was, to the fact that he's just not walking anymore. And that has affected his on-base percentage. I think he yeah. said it's well under 300 at this point, around 272 or 270, something like that. Yeah, yeah, and, and it, right, right. I mean, that's, you know, that was 270 used to be, and if he hit, if he had, if his average was 270, we'd be wondering what the heck's going on, let alone his own on-base. So, you know, shame on me for, you know, in my head, he's a guy that he still has power, he can still drive and runs. He knocked in 115 last year. But like, you know, I alluded to earlier about how we sometimes look at some of the, some stats, but sort of ignore others. That's what I, you know, in my head, I have a, a vision of what Albert Pujols is, but I completely miss the fact that, you know, he's just not walking. You know, in my head, I'm thinking also that, um, you know, maybe because he's got such great power and can't do anything else, and maybe teams should be walking him, but they're just not. So um, it's just, it was just one of those, you know, part of what it, part of it is, you know, we all use our three-year averages, not all, but when we do some, when we do some, um, projection in the off season, you know, it's just sort of the default is a three year average with the most recent years take the most uh take up most of the uh the weight. And therefore the recent years of his not walking much 
are you know are going to take the most weight up but i guess on you know not i guess the the lesson is um you know and i do the the, the longer i do projections the less married i become to the model players like pool holes where you, even even it was three years ago that the high walk rate there it's still factoring in and if that's not the player he is anymore and won't become that player probably shouldn't include that in the three-year wait i probably should either not include that year or artificially knock that walk rate down to you know a better representation of what it actually will be so you know when you project whatever it is 1400 players a lot of it is just you know spreadsheet driven and you don't get to look at every single player you know maybe the answer is do a little bit of less of this work and more work on combing through player by player and finding those outlying numbers like that to get a you know refine the projection coming into the season that was kind of my the note to myself is don't let don't let next year's albert Pujols fool you find that guy and and don't you don't write about him when i write about surprises next year it's funny you mentioned uh, you started to say that his uh, Albert Pujols walk rate is down around Lorenzo Cain, and then you said, "Well, it's not that bad." In fact, Lorenzo Cain's walk rate is three points higher than Albert Pujols this year, and so uh, all the more reason for us to be shocked about Pujols. That's for sure. Uh, in stolen bases, finally, Todd, a third Royal, but this time a positive surprise. Who's your category surprise in stolen bases? We uh, we alluded to him earlier, and uh, uh, Whit Merrifield, and. Uh, yeah, here it's it's kind of it, again. This is the thing coming into the season. Well, coming into the season, you know, P- AL only. You should have been on Merrifield just because you, we figured he's going to play. We just didn't know how much. Raul Montesi was the uh, the flavor of the uh, of the season coming in at, at second base. He'll hopefully eventually play some shortstop, but he was the guy that everybody thought would be the second baseman coming into the season. And Merrifield, I don't even think he broke camp. I think he was sent down before he was actually called up again. So. Uh, it was, you know, looking at Merrifield, sometimes when we look for stolen bases, we, we we look at the number. We look, you know, 45, 48, you know, or whatever. We don't look at the, the percentage, the, the 20 out of 22 or 23 out of 26. And he had a pretty good, one year it wasn't so good, but he had a pretty good success rate. And he was stealing in the 20s. So I just, he wasn't a guy that I thought would be a stolen base source. Uh, even when he was called up, you know, a few steals, but I didn't think he'd be a guy that you'd want to get for steals. Well, because of the the, the, the team contacts and, and and his success rate, he's he's been you know steals are down. So the fact that that 18 or 19 is among the league leaders is you know speaks for that too, especially the American League. But the point being that I didn't realize that Merrifield, you could also add in steals to the uh, to the allure. Uh, you know, especially now, if you want to go out and get with Merrifield, we we talked that there's leagues that you can still trade. I don't think that enough people have noticed that he's running and running as well. That I think you could get him for steals, and you know, you're not going to have to pay as much as you would. Well, you're going to get more steals out of uh, D. Gordon or, or or something like that. But you can, if you only need a, you know a few more, Merrifield's a guy you can get. Question is going to be next year is you know where do we put him? Do we just pencil him in as our starting second baseman next year? Uh, that that's you know, I guess we worry about that next year. But I, I think it was in DFS that I I run my daily projections and I think he was the the uh, projected to be the top point scorer on a particular day and he was facing the White Sox who are terrible at controlling the running game and it may have even been against a guy like Shields which is going to pump your numbers up anyway and I just went wow Merrifield's Merrifield's 
the top second baseman in DFS today. So I went back and looked, and it was, wow, I didn't know he had, at the time, 16 or 15 steals. I didn't, you know, wow, that caught me off guard. So, you know, one of the, another another one that uh, fell through the cracks. Yeah, I'm curious, in hindsight, it's always interesting to look back at these things, why we weren't more interested in Whit Merrifield after last year. He had 300-plus plate appearances, stole eight bags, hit a few home runs, scored some runs, 40 or 45 runs. I mean, he had a pretty decent season last year, and yet we get transfixed by this glowing bubble that is Rule Mondesi Jr. We kind of just say, uh, Whit Merrifield, even though he played well last year, he was an effective player, he batted 283, his on-base percentage was in uh, 330 range. He was a good player last year, and yet coming into it, so many of us just looked right past him because we saw this sparkly bubble in the distance. Right. Now, again, AL only, he's the kind of, I'm, I don't even, I should check my, I don't play as many AL only anymore. I should check to see if I actually did this. I don't think I did. But he's a guy I love in AL only just because you got to figure he's going to play at some point. But at the beginning of the year, it, actually, you know what, I probably wasn't on him because Mr. Genius this year was on Chesler Cuthbert. And that did not work so well. And that kind of shows you how my season's gone. So I kind of was rooting against Whitfield, Whitmerryfield, because I want Cuthbert to be my surprise. But anyway, the point being, um, yeah, and, and, and again, too, how, how stolen bases translate from the minors to the majors, it's it's hard to judge. You know, have to look at the team and the manager and that sort of thing. And just because the guy stole 20 in the, you know, if a guy, actually, that's a good number, 20. If the guy steals 20 in the minors, he could steal 10 in the majors, or he can steal 35 in the majors because, you know, team context. Again, that's why the, the uh, percentage is important. If it's 20 out of 29, I'm not as interested. If it's 20 out of 23, well, if it's a team that runs, I'm interested. So, uh, and I do think that, you know, mixed leagues, I can see being off Merrifield. Shame on, shame on me, shame on everybody else if we dismissed him in AL only. In Tout Wars American League this year, Whit Merrifield was an end gamer. He went for a dollar to Larry Schechter, and uh, I don't remember exactly what the price was on uh, Raul Mondesi, but I think it was higher than that. So, yeah, it's a lesson to be learned, that's for sure. Don't give up on a guy, especially if he has established some kind of track record from the previous season, as uh, Whit Merrifield certainly did. Uh, Todd, as always, this has been a real delight. Uh, where can people hear, find, or read more of Todd Zola? Uh, you can read me on Rotowire. We've alluded to that a couple times. Uh, subscription content, but there's uh there's there's free 10-day trials if you're interested. I write some daily notes and some other stuff for ESPN. And as you alluded to, the Twitter feed at Todd Zola. Now you sort of mentioned answering the uh, one. I'm not like everybody else. I don't I don't answer every single Twitter question. I do, however, answer any question posed in any article I write, as you sort of suggested. Be it. Um, be it even if it's not about that article, and I will answer all questions on my Masters Ball forum. And if uh, if someone directs a question to me on the HQ forum, I will probably see it and answer it there. Uh, if that's the only if, if that's the way you're comfortable getting a hold of me, so I just I can't do them all on Twitter just because too, too many people, you know, I'll say you know pay me pay me for my opinion. So I I, I, I to to their to to be sensitive and respect that. I will uh I you know I, I make you earn it if you want my opinion. Post on a, on a, on a Rotowire, on, on HQ, or on Masters Ball, and you'll get it. All right, Todd, thanks a million for helping us out. Uh, coming down to the wire, we'll look uh, to talk to you a couple more times during the season. Absolutely. We're well, uh, looking forward to it. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN, and he's one of our favorite and most regular guests here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. 
I'd like to do something called baseball and football because these two things are such a part of our lives, these two activities, and yet they're so different. The object of the game is quite different. The object of the game in football is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. I'm going home. I'm going home. George Carlin, a fabulous bit about why baseball is better than football. I'm sure most of us agree. It's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Playing Time Tomorrow, analyst Brian Slack looks ahead at the National League West and asks if Colorado could turn to its youth for hitting reinforcements. In Market Pulse, Brian Rudd assesses the performances of Freddie Freeman, DJ LeMahieu, and others. And in the Bullpen Buyer's Guide, Doug Dennis looks at the trade deadline bullpen changes and relievers with ultra-elite base performance values. And that's just a small sampling of all the great content at BaseballHQ.com, and it's there all the time. And that's why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I am Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have frequent flyers and weekend pitcher matchups. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Mets first base prospect Dominic Smith, making quite a lot of news this week, is Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon. The New York Mets have finally come to the realization that the 2017 season is a complete wash. Last week, they called up their top prospect, Ahmed Rosario, and this week, they called up number three prospect, Dominic Smith. The Mets acquired Smith with the 11th pick in the 2013 draft, and he has steadily developed into one of the top first base prospects in the minors. Smith has a nice professional approach at the plate with plus bat on ball skills, the ability to make consistent hard contact, and an all-fields approach. Coming into 2017, there were questions about Smith's long-term power upside, and while those have been partially answered by his production this summer, he still profiles as having only average power for a corner infielder. Defensively, Smith moves well with good hands, quick feet, and an above-average arm, but speed isn't going to be part of his game once he reaches the majors. On the year, Smith is hitting a robust 330 with a 386 on on-base percentage and a very nice 519 slugging percentage with career highs in both doubles and home runs. Smith has been slightly more aggressive at the plate as he hunts for pitches he can drive into the gaps and out of the park, and will need to be careful not to be overly aggressive once he comes up with the Mets. Long term, Dominic Smith makes an excellent target in deep NL only and keeper formats, and has the tools to hit 300 with 15 to 20 home runs and a solid glove at first base. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on those rising stars. Call-ups coverage the last few days has included Mets first base prospect Dominic Smith, as well as Houston third base prospect J.D. Davis, a couple of Philly prospects, Reese Hoskins, whom Rob covered earlier this season on the Minor League Minute, and catcher Jorge Alfaro. 
and in his column, The Eyes Have It. Scout Chris Blessing is in the park for first-hand evaluation of Red Sox prospect Jay Groom and Rockies prospect Riley Pint. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Frequent Flyers comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Arizona first baseman Kevin Crone and Pittsburgh starter Stephen Brault, and here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Back on July 21st, we profiled a first baseman, Dominic Smith, who was waiting in the wings behind the recently traded Lucas Duda, and now it looks like Dominic Smith will likely be promoted today, August 11th. So this week, we're profiling another first baseman who is waiting in the wings, this time behind Paul Goldschmidt. Our first frequent flyer is Arizona first baseman Kevin Crone, the brother of Angels first baseman C.J. Crone. The younger Crone, who is 24 years old, is currently on pace to lead the AA Southern League in home runs for the second consecutive season. Let's not forget that Kevin Crone fished just three home runs shy of Dodgers feed up Cody Bellinger in the Class A Advanced California League in 2015. For those of you keeping score at home, Cody Bellinger belted 23 home runs at AA in 2016, and Kevin Crone fished with 26. However, almost any comparison to Cody Bellinger, outside of perhaps Aaron Judge, who was our frequent flyer for August 12, 2016, almost a year ago, is probably unfair at best. That's why Kevin Crone, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be log shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are still available in your league. Just remember, we're not promising or even suggesting that Kevin Crone will offer Bellinger-like or Judge-like production, but we are saying that Kevin Crone at this point is certainly worth a flyer, especially in keeper leagues. Another player who is certainly worth a flyer at this point is 25-year-old Pittsburgh Pirates starting pitcher Stephen Brault who has allowed two earned runs or less in 16 of his 19 starts for AAA Indianapolis in 2017, including pitching seven shutout innings as most recent start on August 7th versus Buffalo, lowering his international league-leading ERA to 206 for 2017. According to Baseball HQ's 2017 Minor League Baseball Analyst, Stephen Brault has simple, repeatable mechanics that could allow him to thrive. Indeed, Stephen Brault's command ratio of 2.5 strikeouts to walk seems to support this idea. Remember, at BaseballHQ.com, we highly recommend acquiring pitchers with a command ratio of 2.5 or better. Plus, our own Rob Gordon is 2017 organizational report for the Pittsburgh Pirates on BaseballHQ.com says that Stephen Brault comes after hitters with a low 90s fastball that is good late sink. He also mixes in an improved slider and a decent curve. Yet, even though Stephen Brault effectively mixes those three pitches, he probably really only needs two. Because, as great Warren Spahn once pointed out, a pitcher really only needs two pitches. One they're looking for and one to cross them up. So be sure that you don't get crossed up by adding both Kevin Crone and Stephen Brault, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now our weekend pitcher matchups report. We rate matchups on a scale centered on zero, with ratings of plus one or better cited as strong bets to start, 
Ratings of minus one or worse, strong bets to sit. Between the ones, that's what we call the wild card range. They're toss-ups and you'll have to consider them based on your own situation and appetite for risk. With a look at this weekend's matchups, including Milwaukee left-hander Brent Suter facing Cincinnati right-hander Scott Feldman, and that's the marquee matchup, can you imagine? Here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. According to our matchup ratings as of Thursday, August 10, there are quite a few surprises set for this weekend. To begin with, nine starters have yet to be named. Even our marquee matchup man could have been our Saturday surprise instead, and we still would have had two more possibilities from which to choose. Of the three recommended start matchup ratings this weekend, Chris Sale is second best at 141. Max Scherzer is third at 103. Our marquee matchup features a 27-year-old soft-tossing southpaw with eight starts in 15 appearances covering 54 innings this season. Last year, he had 22 innings in 14 games with two starts. Milwaukee Brewers' surprising Brent Suter is our marquee matchup man with a weekend-high matchup rating of 167. He's at home to face Cincinnati Reds right-hander Scott Feldman, who has a matchup rating of minus 093. That gives Suter and the Brew crew a nice matchup rating differential of 260. The Brewers battled their way back up two notches in the August 7 USA Today Power Rankings, breaking back into the top 10 at number 10 after winning series from the contending Cardinals and Rays last week. Milwaukee is two games over 500 and only a game and a half behind the Cubs in the National League Central. The division rival Redlegs are ranked 27th and are 20 games under 500, 12 and a half games behind the Cubbies. Cincinnati is the worst team in the majors against lefties with a record of 7 and 21 for a winning percentage of 250. Milwaukee is three games over 500 at home and the Reds are 17 games under 500 on the road. Versus teams below 500, the Brewers are seven games above 500. Against teams at or above 500, Cincinnati is 19 games below 500. In short, the Brewers are better than the Reds. Suter has an average fastball velocity of 86 miles per hour this season, and that's up more than two miles per hour from last year. Yet, Suter is showing a decent dominance rate of 7.6 strikeouts per nine, due largely to his strong first pitch strike rate of 68%. With a control rate of 2.3 walks per nine, Suter has a command ratio of 3.3 strikeouts per walk and a whip of 125. A fortunate strand rate of 75% makes Suter's ERA three quarters of a run lower than his expected ERA. But Suter's recommended start matchup rating is not just a result of the Brewers being better than the Reds. Two of Suter's three home starts have been PQS dominant, against the Orioles and the Cubs no less. Only once in his eight starts has Suter given up more than three earned runs. He's never walked more than two batters in a game, and in all but one outing, Suter has given up zero or one home run. Suter's BPV for the year is 98, and he's projected to post a BPV of 85 for the rest of the season. The bulk of his weekend best matchup rating is no doubt due to the Brewers outclassing the Reds, but Brent Suter's small sample size success also contributes to making him our marquee matchup man. We still have two more surprises to choose from for our Saturday surprise. One would be John Lester and his recommended sit matchup rating of minus 133 for a start against the D-backs in Arizona. But let's stick with our youth movement this weekend and look at 25-year-old right-hander Trevor Williams of the Pittsburgh Pirates. He's visiting Toronto to face one of the nine as-yet-unnamed mound opponents. Despite some recent success, Williams has a recommended sit matchup rating of minus 118. But what might happen if you started him? The Toronto Blue Jays are last in the American League East, seven games under 500 and 11 and a half out of first. The Pittsburgh Pirates are two games under 500 and three and a half games out of first in the National League Central. 
Pittsburgh ranks 15th and Toronto 21st in the August 7 USA Today Power Rankings. Rogers Center enhances home runs by 9% from both sides of the plate, but Williams has a ground ball rate of 50%. Give the Pirates a slight advantage. Williams had a cup of coffee in a September call-up last season, logging 13 innings. In 106 innings this year, he has 76 strikeouts and 31 walks for a command ratio of 2.5 strikeouts per walk on a dominance rate of 6.5 strikeouts per nine and a control rate of 2.6 walks per nine. That 6.5 dominance rate is well below the league average of 8.2, but the other indicators are all league average or better. In 17 starts, Williams has two PQS doms and four PQS disasters, including one at Coors Field. Not counting that outing or his first start of the season, Williams has allowed more than three earned runs only once. In those admittedly cherry-picked 15 efforts, Williams allowed 0-1 home run 14 times. You may be pleasantly surprised if you start Saturday Surprise Trevor Williams this weekend. Check our site to get updated matchup information every morning. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Ordinarily, this would be the spot where I'd have my weekly Master Notes comment, but Master Notes this week is a bit too long and has too many visuals to make much sense for you as an audio commentary. So if you're interested in my team review at the two-thirds mark of the season, just get on over to BaseballHQ.com and read it there. It's free and worth every penny. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 11th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 32 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. Todd is a fine baseball analyst and writer, and he's a regular and favorite guest of the HQ Radio podcast. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, don't you know? Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky, And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, now over 1,300 followers. And please send us a message on our email address, dhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.